Welcome to Digital Therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. In the last episode, I got one venture capitalist view on the DTX market, Will Gibbs, who is a principal at Octopus Ventures. Their DTX portfolio consists of Big Health and Quid Genius, which took the direct-to-consumer and employer routes to market. In this episode, we stay in Europe and have yet another venture capitalist view. But in this case, the portfolio company has taken a full regulatory and prescription route to market. It was great to connect with Edward Cliphouse, partner at Amadeus Capital and venture advisor at M Ventures. But before we dive in. I feel like I have known Ed for decades and had to look up where and when we met, and I do think it was at one of the first Frontiers Health conferences. The fact that it feels like I've known Ed for many years speaks to his character, with a welcoming Dutch personality and an open book to brilliant thoughts. And now, we jump to my conversation with Edward. I'm here with Edward Kliphaus, partner at Amadeus and venture advisor at M Ventures. Welcome to this podcast, Ed, and uh, was looking forward to having you here. Uh, but before we sort of dive into a lot of the venture capital dealings, we'd love to get the audience to get to know you first. So maybe a little bit of your background and how you actually came to health tech and VC investments. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eugene. My background is probably best described as failed scientist. I started out as a pharmacologist, but unfortunately, wasn't necessarily that successful at it. So I then reached out to a number of my friends in the VC industry, asked them what they were doing. I hadn't had the slightest idea of what venture capital was, but something with science and business seemed kind of cool to me. And through sort of that journey came to Adventures in 2009. This was in the time when Adventures was originally being set up. So that was a very interesting experience for me, witnessing sort of the inception of a corporate venture capital fund. I then actually left, went into commodities trading, randomly enough, ended up on the sell side as an equity research analyst and a broker. And I guess that sort of shaped my view going forward of, you know, there's a disconnect of what early stage venture prices in and looks at and sort of the scientist value. And then on the other end of the spectrum, the way that let's say public markets and large investors actually value assets that we invest in at the early stages. So I then came back to Ventures in 2014, originally focused on therapeutics investments, and in 2015, we basically set up a fund that was geared towards what we now call frontier tech and sustainability. And a large part of that mandate was healthcare technology. So that's how we sort of got a focus into the um, DTX space. And in fact, I, without a lack of pride, I'll say that we were the first European investor to make a DTX investment when in 2016, we backed Takiwi. That was um, a very, a very interesting journey on, on that side. I'll challenge you on that just uh, for a second. And I'll just touch on your comment about, you know, therapeutics, right? So 2014, you came in around the therapeutics and then 2015, frontier tech and sustainable technology, right? And what was the thesis behind this, right? Because this podcast is about digital therapies and how does that tie back in to the original therapeutics, I guess the molecular therapeutics piece. And so maybe talk a little bit about the thesis that you guys set up and how does it tie with the core business of therapies? Right, so I'm actually gonna take a bit of a detour on this one because we actually, in 2009, when I was first at Ventures, we started off with an investment at that point called Healthcare IT. That was an investment in oxygen. And oxygen later on became Progeny, which is now listed on NASDAQ. Mm-hmm. So we sort of had an idea of what technology could do in the healthcare realm and how it could impact clinical outcomes, patient experiences, 
reduce costs and ultimately become a true value driver in this domain. So we basically looked for opportunities that were evidence-based, could be used independently or in combination with existing therapies, and we didn't limit ourselves to regulatory approval. Now, the thesis at Adventures, when in 2015 and 2016, we basically embarked on this journey of looking at digital solutions in the healthcare space with a dedicated vehicle, we tried to sort of turn the narrative around from, I would say, traditional venture capital, sort of the Tinder approach to VC, where you just swipe right and swipe left on deals that are being presented to you. We said, why don't we try and make a little bit of sense of the noise we see? And we build a thesis in this. And the thesis we built was really around uh, what we observe to be the biggest threat uh, to humanity, which is delayed feedback. So how can we cut delayed feedback cycles and ultimately bring a point of intervention close to a point of diagnosis? Or if you think about disease management, bring a point of redosing closer to a point of need, make uh, precision medicine, which has been hallowed for like decades on end, actually closer to reality and make medication much more uh, bespoke for individuals. I mean, as a sidebar, the fact that we still dose on milligrams per kilogram seems pretty damn archaic to me. So I'll give you one example of basically how we got to Achille. We said we want to make a number of investments in the biosensing domain mm-hmm. and ultimately use the ability of continuous data collection to get a more granular view of individuals and actually also evoke a response in ways that haven't you know, been able to be delivered before. So the first part we said was we want to do a biosensing investment where we can not only sense, but also make an impact in a modality that cannot be targeted with traditional therapeutics. And so we looked at neurology because the blood-brain barrier is a pretty unsurmountable barrier for a lot of the traditional molecular entities. So we looked at stress and depression and actually what are the hallmarks and the drivers of that? And are there any digital solutions that can have an impact on that? And that's really how we got to Achille. They had this fantastic Nature publication in 2013 on the cover of Nature, which basically had the title Game Changer, how they could impact cognition and how they could impact people's let's say, core drivers of diseases like ADHD. Now, maybe before digressing too far into that, the other two areas where we, where we build a thesis in that same biosensing domain, aside from the novel modalities that Akiti tackled, were continuous sensing, making clinical inferences. That ultimately became a company called Biolink, which is a microneedle biosensing device. Mm-hmm. Um, we looked at, for example, if you want to have blood concentrations of certain analytes, you, know, you want to make those decisions within a certain amount of time. So from least invasive sweat, tears, can you actually use those biomarkers, the analyze you pick up in those liquids to make a clinical relevant decision? Turns out you cannot because the lag time and the dilution is too much. So we basically went into the dermis and that's how we got to BioLink. And then the last one was completely non-invasive, zero interaction data collection. We looked at eye tracking, we looked at typing patterns, we looked at gait and ultimately we settled on voice. And that became Sonda Health, a vocal biomarker company we backed in 2017. Gotcha. Again, we're going to spend most of the time speaking about the M Ventures and the hypothesis there and how you guys progressed. When you guys were setting this up, and you know, let's not go back maybe all the way to 2009 as you did with healthcare IT focus, but let's stick with that 2015 to 16 thesis. Is the M Ventures, I'll call it mandate, was it strategic, financial, combination, you know, just even from a setup perspective, because then we can go into, so what is that hype business hypothesis it was for M Ventures and the CVC? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's both. So the initial investment for M Ventures is always strategic. If you think about it, I mean, you have a big pharmaceutical firm or a big 
conglomerate, I should almost say, uh, carving out 450 million to make investments into early stage technologies. You know, the returns of that can be on an absolute basis quite impactful, but on a relative basis to the firm size, it's not that meaningful. Mm -hmm. So the initial investment is always strategic. The agreement was that any follow-on investment was always financial. And the reason we constructed it that way is with a financial follow-on investment, you make sure you're aligned yourself with the other investors in the syndicate. Also, if a strategic direction should change and the company still performs that you invested in, you don't have to walk away from the investment. So it was basically aligning from the initial investment, any investee company with the direction of the mother firm, making sure that the dialogue is established, that the synergies are there and the support is appropriately lined up, but making also sure that any follow-on investment basically is by the merit of the company and there's no adverse signaling effects to the investee company. And, you know, I love your comment around, you know, delayed feedback, right? And the intervention, whether it's a diagnosis or post or throughout the journey. And you already alluded to your investment in Achille, and we had Eddie on this podcast in some of the earlier episodes. You sort of planted some of the seeds around why Achille, but maybe let's peel the onion a little bit more, right? So obviously the delayed feedback, that solves it, but also the prescription route, right? Versus, let's call it the employer or enrollment-based or other channels, as actually Will Gibbs from Octopus was on in the previous episode. And I would tend to say that they invested somewhere early on as well. Maybe you guys were. I'll double check on that. Uh, <laughs> but into big health. So let's stick with Akili, your investment decision and what attracted you to the company. I mean, for us, it ticked the major box of evidence-based. That was the first thing. So the fact that there was a robust controlled study that basically showed this robust effect which was also validated not only by, let's say, biomarkers such as people doing tests, but also actual clinical biomarkers. So maybe in a nutshell, Achille basically has an effect of neuroplasticity. So it basically creates new activity that perhaps wasn't there before in the prefrontal cortex, and that can be seen by doing a midline frontal beta test. So measuring the prefrontal cortex activity. That's damn cool. There's no other therapeutic agent that has ever been able to evoke that response we see the same response for individuals, you know, in an uncontrolled fashion, soldiers going to war or people going through trauma, but we haven't been able to harness that power of neuroplasticity for good and in a controlled manner to actually impact in a reliable and meaningful way functioning of human beings. So that was the idea. The other thing that we looked at was scalability. Now, when you think about how we look at the effect of therapeutics, traditional therapeutics, usually endpoints are quite clinical, which is a bit of a contradiction in terms, I realize myself, because clinical study, clinical endpoint. But if you think about an oncology trial, overall survival, progression-free survival, those are very hard data points, but it doesn't take into account the way that these people live. It doesn't take into account how you're surviving. It doesn't take into account the more softer elements that actually impact that survival rate. And those elements are oftentimes to do with, let's say, you know, cognitive functioning, stress, depression. So investing in a solution that has a meaningful impact, but also a controlled impact on stress and depression and allows us to impact that in a clinically meaningful way, not only has an impact in, for example, ADHD, which is the first indication that he's going after, but has a fantastic potential for understanding the onset of Alzheimer's or even impacting COVID fog, chemo fog, and making sure that people can actually live their lives better and therefore have a better experience of their therapy and their treatments and actually have a better outcome. And that, of course, ties into an economic argument as well. 
Mm-hmm. So that was the real investment thesis behind it. It was rooted in evidence yep. and ultimately something that is massively scalable. Let's jump a little bit to the present. And I would say maybe, you know, we've seen investments going into DTX. We've seen number of deals between a number of different institutions along the healthcare pathway. What do you think have been some of the capital injection drivers into the DTX as a field in the last year or two? I'll go from, let's say, the altruistic ones to perhaps the less altruistic ones. I think the first element is just, you know, macro. We see the proportion of people contributing to the healthcare systems as we build them over the last decades changing. The proportion of people contributing to those systems is getting less as compared to the people drawing from those systems. And the inefficiencies therefore have to be wielded out. So healthcare technology by and large is set to impact that. Basically, the way that we constructed our systems, especially in the West, are simply not tenable for the coming decades. And DTX is part of that, right? I mean, basically, it sort of like rides that wave of potential disruption. Then the second part of it is most DTX still have an effect on experience and a large proportion of the solutions will ultimately go towards cognition, behavior change, et cetera. Now, these sort of like softer parts of the healthcare system and these softer elements that actually have a very meaningful impact on outcomes have come out of obscurity in the last couple of decades and perhaps even more so now in the last year with COVID. I mean, depression has been a widely acceptable or mental health has been a widely acceptable issue. And it hasn't been something that was at the forefront of people's minds, no pun intended, before that. So that's, I think, a second driver. And then the third driver, I guess, is again, sort of the argument, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Low interest rates and a flurry of capital has simply allowed for a large amount of capital flowing into venture capital as a whole and healthcare technology as a bastion of, let's say, the final undisrupted industry vertical is seeing an influx therefore as well. Now, the final argument I'm going to make is, I think democratization of healthcare and putting sort of the power back into the patient's hands will be, in my opinion, the accelerator of the trends that we've observed so far. So that will be the main driver of, at least, this is my personal prediction, the main driver of what we will see going forward. And I hope that that will be a main driver for good, because at this point, this is one of these weird industries where the actual purchaser is not the end consumer. And that is, I think, set to change to a large part. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my journalistic partner on this podcast, Brian Dolan, who is the founder of Exits and Outcomes, and as I like to call him, the digital health detective. Let's see what question Brian has for our guest today. In the past year, we've seen acquisitions and IPOs ramp up for digital health companies significantly. But that's especially been for companies that have been employer-focused and telehealth-focused. We've seen larger virtual care providers buy up complementary peers. We've seen health insurance companies snap up telehealth companies. And even smaller companies are, are going public via SPACs. So as an investor, I'm curious to get your take on exits for this category of companies that we've been talking about on this podcast. So more pharma-like digital therapeutics companies. Do you foresee pharmaceutical companies buying up some of these? What's kind of your overall take of the exits endgame for digital therapeutics? And if you could kind of take us back, like how has that evolved for you? How are you thinking about exits maybe a couple of years ago when you first started investing in digital therapeutics companies? 
Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Let me take the first bit separately, and that is the IPOs and acquisitions and acqui-IPOs. I think what we've observed so far is we've seen traditional methods repackaged in new delivery mechanisms. So telehealth is a prime example of this. It's an existing product, your interface with your physician, and ultimately through a new channel, i.e. digital, it comes to you. In my prediction, the next phase that we'll witness is fundamental new technologies. So not delivery of existing technologies through a new channel, but fundamental new technologies. Achille is still an example of that, but we see a flurry of, of opportunities in this space. And then even sort of like the version 2.1 of that is completely blue sky markets, markets that haven't been able to be quantified before. Now, if you think about it from the other side, from the public market side, for people to build confidence that these things exist, they need to have witnessed that this premise actually can be fulfilled. So it is much easier to back a delivery of an existing market because you can quantify the market and you can sort of quantify the efficiencies and therefore you can extrapolate what that market share will be and therefore what the value of such a venture could be. Therefore, it is a relatively low-hanging fruit, quote-unquote, for people to make a purchasing decision on such a business. A fundamental new technology has a lot more inherent risk to it. And a fundamental new technology playing in an unexisting market has another layer of risk. Now, the reward is arguably bigger as well, but people need to at least have confidence or investors need to have confidence that there can be players that can deliver on the premise here. And then you will see, at least in my experience and in my prediction, the increased activity in those fundamental new technologies ramping up. So where does that leave us with regards to the question around SPACs and smaller companies going public and the exits playing out for pharma-like DTX companies in the coming years? I think pharma-like DTX companies, they need to play to their own strength. And for me, basically coming back to something I said earlier, for me, a DTX company that is successful basically plays to the strengths of evidence. So evidence is key. You need to get the customer need right. You need to demonstrate value to your patients. It's a unique tool, which is very important. And a large number of these plays actually put the responsibility back into the hands of patients through direct feedback cycles and cut that delayed feedback cycle that we mentioned earlier. And then the last one is you need to demonstrate near-term value. So you're really sitting here on sort of an intersection between two worlds. If you think of where venture capital in tech goes, the capital usually goes into markets that are quickly de-risked or ventures that are quickly de-risked because they can collect quick customer feedback. In therapeutics, you de-risk along a regulatory framework. Here, you're playing to the strength of both sides. You can still have the protection of a regulatory framework if you elect to do so, and you can get quick customer feedback. So a truly successful DTX, in my opinion, plays to both sides. Now, where does that leave us for exits? I don't think there will be a lot of pharma companies buying DTX, frankly. I think you'll see partnering, that absolutely. But my prediction will be that there will be a number of larger players in the DTX space having licensing deals with various pharmaceutical companies, but simply because of their vastly different methods of commercialization and vastly different methods of de-risking, I would see it rather as a partnership than an acquisition by one or the other. And so in my opinion, pharma should partner up. They should partner up with players like this. I hope that answers your question. I'm going to actually hop in here because I typically ask on this podcast to follow on to Brian's question, you and I had been talking about biosensing delays, right? And instantaneous feedback and, um, you know, intervention at point of diagnosis, as well as, you know, on the pharma side, we keep talking about real world data. And then ultimately over time, this turns into evidence, right? And so I typically ask this question, you know, DTX companies that know the end consumer really, really well, and then pharma companies that 
honestly don't, right? Or there's a couple of hops away outside of, let's say, patient support programs, which are also highly outsourced. So you talked about your hypothesis. I would challenge you a little bit on, is the DTX companies going to swallow the pill inside that you know, more human experience? Or again, it sounds like your answer is no, pharma companies are not going to swallow the DTXs inside in more of a partner role. I would sort of add in the other component, DTX companies are great set of patient support programs as well. You can turn them into, but you know, so it all depends. So maybe unravel a little bit your thinking on DTX, you know, swallowing the pill or the pill swallowing the DTX. I think we're both right because you can draw a line in the whole ecosystem and you say, okay, there's products like Achilles is a product. It is bill like product almost that can be delivered and therefore can be licensed by any pharma company that, for example, strikes a license or strikes a license deal in any geography and then licenses that therapy standalone or in conjunction with an existing therapy to, to impact patients. Now, if you think of another company we back called Medisafe, which is a medication management solution, they will benefit from horizontal scale. This is, by the way, the company we co-invested in with uh, Octopus. So Will knows very well as well. But that is a very horizontal play. So parking a technology like that into one particular pharmaceutical company precludes other pharmaceutical companies from using it because nobody wants to share that level of data and ultimately will limit the scope of such a venture. So a company such as that, whose active ingredient is behavior change to make individuals take their pills on time or take their medication on time, ultimately will benefit from horizontal scale. And those companies will not be able to partner, or at least I think they should stand alone and not be acquired and partner with a pharmaceutical clients. Yeah. And by the way, I did look up while you were speaking. So Octopus did invest in 2016. So it might be a matter of months <laughs> that, that, that you guys were the first. I didn't look in the date, uh, but Index did invest into big health earlier than 2016. So just a you know, side note. Ah, you're debunking my claim here. That's painful. I am debunking your claim, but hey, it wouldn't be fun without it. So... So let's talk about, I mean, again, you know, we talked about a little bit of the regulatory component, evidence-based, and some of the decisions you guys made around investment in Achille. And this is obviously the prescription DTX route. You know, Achille, and I don't know that much deeper into it, but have now launched, you know, Achille Care as well, you know, sort of surrounding this. Talk to me a little bit about any distinction or you may not be seeing it, sort of a pure prescription DTX, right? Versus or in conjunction with, as I've been calling disease management 2.0, right? Can you talk to me about how you're thinking about that space and where it's going? Yeah. So you're hitting a very contentious point in a, in a matter of debating this space all the time, right? We look at it basically turning the world around. And if the end goal is to benefit patients, whatever it is that you do in a quantifiable manner, because the quantification of the impact is your product ultimately, and that can drive you to displaying relevant levels of revenues and margins. And I'm talking about margins here in the realm of like 50 to 60 to 70%, because it's a large part software after all, and indeed addressing those payers and patients' needs, then regulatory approval or even prescription becomes a tactical decision and not an end goal. And so we see, for instance, when we look at Sonda Health, which is a vocal biomarker company, building vocal biomarkers uh, for, for uh, different solutions. When COVID hit, we cranked out a quick biomarker there. That is really helpful for employers for getting their employees back to work. That is not a regulatory approved solution. 
but it's really beneficial in its positioning right now to basically have as an additional data point to a temperature screen for people coming back. Now, the next biomarker there will be for a harder quote unquote clinical indication that will most likely have to go through regulatory approval. So what I'm trying to say here is illustrating the point that therefore for SOND, and we see it for a number of other companies we're involved with as well, regulatory approval is a tactical decision and not a strategic end goal in and of itself. So Ed, you just talked about the vocal biomarkers and while you know maybe no FDA approval, it could be a helpful tool, right? So where do you look at prescription digital therapeutics and going after the regulated and the risk reward ratio here? Yeah, I mean, again, it is a tactical decision, right? I mean, if you think of regulatory approval will basically give you very high barriers to entry because any follower will need to collect the same amount of clinical data, which will presumably cost at least a similar amount of money and a similar amount of time, there's no direct need for high customer acquisition costs. You're mostly allowing a B2B or a B2B2C route. You're basically unlocking that gatekeeper of the payers to enable commercialization through those channels. But your timelines are at the grace of regulators and usually are high cost. Now, the non-regulatory side, on the other hand, will allow you a direct route to revenue. It will basically enable a B2C route in addition to a B2B and, and the B2B2C route, you typically have this direct-to-consumer business models. So your CAC LTV metrics are all of a sudden important and they will be used for your valuation. So you mostly have high customer acquisition costs to stay ahead of competition and you have low barriers to entry. So on the one side, you see a fairly protected yet costly route that ultimately people will sort of commit to in, in a more biotech fashion because you know, valuation will be done on area under the curve after that. And on the non-regulatory side, you'll see a more tech-enabled, hyper-growth, hyper-speed path. Now, the other final thing I'm going to say about that is on the regulatory side, therefore, if you think about how traditional therapeutics are being commercialized, usually, you know, we look at a patent cliff. If it's for small molecules, we look at the area under the curve of commercialization and we risk that discounted back through a risk-adjusted net present value based on the BCF. That's it. And then you have standardized metrics for phase one, phase two, phase three, and, and standardized timelines and risk numbers. For digital therapeutics, those numbers are not there yet. They're not relevant yet. We don't understand it entirely yet because it's such a new industry. Moreover, the commercialization partners are highly questionable because we don't know what is, is Abby with his rheumatoid arthritis franchise um, going to be equally good at commercializing a digital solution as they are going to be at you know, commercializing of alpha, that's a different thing. And so if you're looking at it that way and you still have to build out your commercialization side, then the price can be great because you can become the digital pharma, if that makes sense, and not just stick to being a digital biotech, mm -hmm. but the cost and the time is also equally great. And therefore you need to have very deep pocketed and very trusting investors. Since we're speaking about, you touched a little bit on the future, what do you think the drivers of success going forward for the DTX? as an industry, right? Basically, it's all about delivering a true outcome. Like if we can show as an industry that what we've been saying here actually works in a real world setting, for Achille, it is indeed delivering neuroplasticity, for Sonda, it is picking up certain vocal patterns that ultimately can signify the onset of a certain disorder. For BioLink, it will be monitoring your biomarkers in a continuous fashion that we know exactly what happens to you when and why. Um, if we can show the clinical benefit of these things in a real-world setting, then we have a massive business case in our hands because it not only will allow such more potential for individuals to take control of their own healthcare, 
it also will cut a tremendous amount of inefficiencies out of the system. Inefficiencies of people not responding to, to certain treatments, people continuing bad behaviors whilst knowing that ultimately it will cause them harm and it will cause the system enormous cost and ultimately making sure that you know those two incentives are aligned. But when we look at these companies, we usually, we ask ourselves three questions. Who benefits, who pays, and who needs to adopt? And the challenge with healthcare is that oftentimes the stakeholders in those three questions, so the answers to those three questions are not the same. Yeah. But with digital, you have a solution to make them the same, to align them. And that's the power of this. Love it. So we started with you, Ed, and let's finish with you. What is your why? What gets you up every morning? I love to play with new toys every day and toys that do something for humanity and make our lives better. I mean, I'm well aware of the flip side of some of the technologies that we invest in. There is, if you think about wielding out potential genetic malformations that could lead to cystic fibrosis, the flip side of that is that we can do progeny selection and say, I want a, a highly intelligent child and you're going into Gattaca territory. That's equally valid. So what gets me out of bed every morning is basically being able to play with these toys in my mind, sort of extrapolate what this could be and have a dialogue about it. I think it's also our obligation, equally for you as it is for me, to have a dialogue about also what is the dark side of some of these things that we're potentially embarking on and what does that mean for us and why shouldn't we have regulation about, you know, data privacy is what we're doing now, but maybe even privacy of thoughts or when you think about, you know, machine brain interfaces where we haven't touched on, where is the line between sovereignty of an individual and benefit to a group. I think these are, you know, enabling that dialogue whilst hopefully driving a force for humanity and satisfying my own curiosity. That's what gets me out of that. Pleasure having you on, Ed. Thank you for making the time and uh, we'll be talking soon. Fantastic. Thanks, Eugene. Thanks so much for tuning into Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of Mission-Based Media. Be sure to hit that subscribe button to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're then automatically notified when we post our upcoming episodes where I speak with dozens of leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Brian Dolan's Exit and Outcomes, you can always find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. You can connect with me personally on Twitter at HealthEugene or follow my journey of writing my first book, Heart Pill to Swallow, at heartpilltoswallow.substack.com. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.